morning, everybody. So we are going to be in Acts chapter 4, for those of you that weren't here last week, and we'll be picking up in verse 32 and following. What we're going to look at today is, um, at first, is kind of a summary statement that Luke has about what the early church looked like. And for those of you that have been following along, as, as all of you have really, uh, this has some parallels to another summary statement that we saw at the latter part of chapter 2. So I'm going to uh, read um, uh, this passage and then I think you'll see the parallels. In uh, Acts 2:42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So if you turn to Acts 4 now, and we've just... Uh, been dealing with uh, the uh, healing of the lame man, uh, Peter and John, uh, or uh, God through Peter and John, and then uh, the fallout and the aftermath of all that. And th now we come to verse 32. We hear again, you'll hear some echoes of Luke's earlier passage. It says, Now the full number of those who, were belie who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So we have this other um, view of what the early church was like, and it just sounds uh, so good, and so much was going on. And the first thing that we see is that there was unity there. It says, those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And remember that even more how special this would have been. We're still in the aftermath in, the, in just a few months after the Passover that had this big international pilgrimage. And of course, it wasn't like you just flew in for the weekend and then you flew back home. You know, these people had come from long, long distances um, by, who knows, caravan, by ship. Um, they weren't just like hopping on the train or, or um, uh, the, the local air, airplane. Uh, they had committed, this was a long pilgrimage, a long travel, probably would have taken uh, months even if they hadn't decided to stay around. But we know that many of these people who had come from all over, they had gotten saved while they were there, and this was all new, and all, the only other people that were saved were right there. It wasn't like they had a lot of people back home that would have been in this state. They were all together, and so if we think about this of one heart and soul, that's very cross-cultural. Uh, there were Jews living all over the place, so you had Jews from Egypt, and Jews from Cyprus, and Jews from Turkey, and all over. Um, so a very culturally different group. We know there were multiple different languages, but yet they were of one heart and one soul. And, and 
even that one factor of all this group of people being together uh, would have been amazing. If you've ever been to a big Christian concert or um, a Billy Graham crusade or something and, and how amazing it is to see all the different people just from different churches and different denominations. Now that's pretty cool right there, right? But think about it if every all, the differences weren't just you know the church across the street but was from truly international and I would imagine that some of you that have served as missionaries have probably had experiences like that where you groups from all the different uh, areas come together and that surely must have been amazing. And then the other thing we see it says they had everything in common. Verse 33, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Great grace was upon them all. And there wasn't a needy person among them because as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. And we have this great teaching and this great unity that comes. And then we have what do they do to take care of each other? And if you'll if you want to think about our outline for today, I want you to key on this one phrase, at the apostles' feet. So we're going to see three episodes of what happens at the apostles' feet. All right? So we're fixing to see scene number one. I'll pick up in verse 33. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any as had need. So, scene number one. We have the general concept that people were looking after each other, that this was this community of believers, and this unity that could only have come about by the action of the Holy Spirit was prompting them to look out after each other, to pool their resources so that there was no one that had any need, right? And they laid it at the apostles' feet. It was an act of submission, an act of humility, uh, that they were just bringing it there uh, to for the you know say you guys use it, use it for the good of everyone, and then it was distributed, and this was really unique. Um, it is it is harkens back um, to how it was supposed to have been in the promised land. And I talked some last week about the parallels of this was kind of the new promised land, right? We talked about the 40 years and all that sort of thing. Just And, and Luke is using some of these phrases about bringing things together and distributing it to everyone. And none of this is happening in a vacuum, all right? Um, we know, well just to make it modern day, the greatest archaeological discovery in the last 50 or 60 years was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? And we know that this authenticated so much of what we knew about the Bible, and we had all these other copies, so we could just really verify. Most of these Dead Sea Scrolls were 
scrolls that were being studied by groups of believers who were basically um, around the first, around the birth of Christ, AD 1, 2, 3, in that frame. So this would have been 30 or 40 years ago. There were a group of people who were trying to basically do it the way God had intended, to get together this community, to study the scriptures, to live communally together, to put everything, all their resources together, to try to recreate what God had said he wanted back in Deuteronomy when they were on the, on the brink of the promised land. So this idea of having everything in common and developing this community of believers people would have known what these people were doing. And, and it kind of defined this new movement. So uh, just the context of having everything uh, in common, um, it wasn't an unheard of thing. It kind of defined them uh, as this new grassroots movement. But they laid things at the apostles' feet. Now, Luke, being a good storyteller, he's going to say, and you know, let me give you an example of one guy who did this. So, verse 35. They laid them at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to each one who had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here's scene number two. We go from the general... So now a very specific person has sold some land, given the money to the apostles' feet. So we meet Barnabas. Now this not only gives Luke an example to uh, uh, illustrate a single person bringing what he had, uh, and this doesn't say he brought everything he had, he brought the proceeds of the sale of this land to the apostles' feet, but also gives him an opportunity to introduce who Barnabas was. We're going to hear about Barnabas as we go through Acts, um, but here we find out that Barnabas had a nickname. Now, I think we can, we can speculate a little bit. If you're in a group, well, I, I'm speculating he must have had a, an odd combination of features. I think he probably had a big personality, but at the same time, he had a certain amount of humility. Now, that's not a common combination, is it? I think he must have had a big personality because in this very short time, he was from Cyprus originally, right? So he probably wasn't a Galilean. We know that. He wasn't like a buddy of Peter and John. In this short period of time, he had hung out close enough to the apostles where they gave him a nickname. And generally, if you're in a group of people, if you're going to get a nickname to your face, <laughs> chances are it's, it's, it's a positive thing. Um, there might be nicknames that people call you behind your back, but it's not going to be good. But in a group, if you get a nickname and it's a positive nickname, chances are you've kind of stood out a little bit. You probably got that big personality. Uh, there's, there's old Barnabas, son of encouragement. But it was a positive nickname, so he not only had a big personality, but a, it was for his encouragement. It was kind of a, a humble thing that he did. We'll find out later that he also had leadership qualities, which makes him even more of an odd bird. So you have uh, a big personality who's also a leader, but yet is humble and 
submissive to his authority, and that's just uh, a rare, rare thing. And then we found out a little bit more about him. We, he's from Cyprus. Now, Cyprus is an island a couple hundred miles west of uh, the nation of Israel, across parts of the Mediterranean Sea. So he was from Cyprus. We also find out that he was a Levite. Now, this is interesting because how did he sell this land and give it? Now, Levites weren't supposed to own land in Israel, right? They weren't given any land. They weren't supposed to own any land. In fact, that's why people were supposed to take care of the Levites because they didn't have any land. So did he have enough time to go back to Cyprus, a couple hundred miles across the waves there, and sell it, and then come back and give it? Or did he send somebody? Or maybe he had already sold it, had the money with him. I don't know. It's just kind of mysterious. Um, I guess maybe he could have land back in Cyprus. I don't know. That was interesting. So some mystery there. So just some interesting tidbits of how it all works. We don't really know. But the other thing which is kind of interesting is he was a Levite, so that's the priestly tribe. That's where all the priests came from. Now, the priests were really a subset of the tribe of Levi. They were the ones who came directly from Aaron. But if you were other tribe of Levi, you were probably doing something in the service of, of God, um, a helper of some persuasion. And if you think about it, your entire family tree was full of people who had been supported by the other 11 tribes, right? So now we have someone who has always been supported, and now he's saying, it's my turn to give back. I just think that's kind of cool. Scene number three, chapter five. But a man named Ananias, and with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So, it's a little different, right? A little different scene at the apostles' feet. This was a popular place to be at the apostles' feet. Um, 
So what do we what do we take from this? I think we have to, and I think justifiably so, we can read between the lines a little bit. The way Luke tells the story, we see Barnabas, humble, encourager, Ananias and Sapphira probably saw that he was praised for his donation, and they wanted some of that, but they wanted it at a discount. So they said, we're going to sell some land, we're going to keep a part for ourselves, but we're going to act like we're given the whole proceeds of the sale. And it appears that the Holy Spirit revealed this to uh, Peter because as soon as Ananias lays it there, verse 3, it says, Peter says, you know, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds? (coughs) They contrived this plan. They conspired on this plan. They were in it together. And God wasn't to have it. It parallels, you know, when when we have the Ark of the Covenant, the whole that whole concept was brand new, and you know, he said, you know, you can't touch it. And when we remember the the story of where the person's carrying it one of them stumbles and somebody reaches out to support it. I said, no. He dropped dead right there and said, you know, you said you can't touch it. Um, it reminds of a story, Achan. We remember the story of Achan who held back some things and, and brought some ruin upon himself because he had kept some things that he shouldn't have kept. It's interesting based on Peter's questioning we know that they weren't obliged to do this it wasn't like everybody had to do this so when it says you know and they had things in common there's a difference between and this is kind of true in many places in the Bible there's a difference between something that's descriptive and something that is prescriptive (laughs) Right? So Luke's describing what had happened. He's not saying that that's what everybody should do, that it's a prescription for what you should do. He's just describing what they were doing. So as Peter asks him, you know, he, he says this to Sapphira, you know, well, I guess, no, I guess it was uh, to Ananias. When you sold it, wasn't it yours to do with what you wanted to? You know? And when it wasn't sold, wasn't it still yours? He's saying, you know, you didn't have to do this. You didn't have to do this. It wasn't under compulsion. And then Sapphira, he gives a, a chance to her to, to be truthful. And she, no, she sticks to the agreement that she and Ananias had. So, Look at verse 11. It says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. 
So this concept of greatness is bracketed by Luke. If we go back to the beginning of the passage in verse 33, it says, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony, and there was great grace upon them all, and now we find that there was great fear, fear of the Lord. So that's not a bad trio of things to have, right? Great power, great grace, great fear of the Lord, right? We are call ourselves sons of God because God has claimed us that. And some people say, well, that makes Jesus my big brother. Well, Jesus is our Savior. He's our God. Might be too casual to think of him as your buddy. You know? There's a certain amount of fear that of God that we may have lost a little bit of. It's probably a good thing to think about. So let's look at a couple things here. In verse 11, this is the first time in Acts we hear or see the word church. And great fear came upon the whole church. It's the first time. Um, the Greek word, ekklesia, E-K-K, if we transliterate to, to English, it's the word where we get ecclesiastical things. Um, but it means called out. So this was a group of people who were called out. And if you think about it, God's greatest work has always been from the position of being in the minority, not the majority. Right? We talked about this a little bit before too. So if you feel in the minority sometimes in our culture, in our world, that is normative for the Christian. Right? In fact, if you, if you go back to the kind of the heyday of kind of Christianity being the norm, if you went back to like the early 1900s, you could maybe go that far from the temperance movement and, um, you know, anti-drinking and all that sort of thing. But the heyday of the 50s, um, you know, when you know, everything was great and your sofa was covered in vinyl and you had TV dinners and, you know, um, and there were churches everywhere and, you know, churches were bringing the masses to Sunday school and their bus programs and just, um, this has been a very weird few decades in the terms of history, right? That is not normative. The, the high profile of Christianity of the last, say, 100 years or so is very, very strange. Very strange. So God has always done his best work from the minority position. And then look at what this passage tells us, especially if you think about it with the passage that we just looked at. This is yet another example of the big threat that the ruling elite must have seen, right? So they're coming against leaders who had power to work miracles. Now there's this big grassroots, and now they're not bringing their stuff to the temple. They're bringing their, selling their land and everything, and they're bringing it and giving it 
to this other body and they are submitting to a different authority now. They're at the feet of the apostles now. Nobody was bowing at the feet of the priests. Nobody's bowing to those corrupt people. So think about as you as we move in and you kind of sense this tension building up, this is not going well for them. They have got to be really steamed about what they're seeing. And then let's look at another concept. Does this say anything about the concept of New Testament giving? Are we to take anything about New Testament giving from this? Is this considered normative where we are to sell the things and, and give it at the feet of our church leadership? Um, now, let me say, if somebody wants to do that and feels led of God to do that, there is nothing in Scripture preventing that. I'm sure the Finance Committee would be more than happy to receive those proceeds and to use them for the needs of the church, and I think that is great. But from Peter's questions, we basically know there were no rules back then. He said, look, you know, this was your land. Wasn't it yours? And even after you sold it, wasn't the money yours? Yes, there were no rules about giving. In fact, in the New Testament, the rules about giving are pretty loose. Probably looser than a lot of other modern-day pastors would like. Right? It says in 2 Corinthians, each one must give. So we must give, right? As he has decided in his heart. So if if you're submitting yourself to God and, and communicating with God, said so God's going to line up your heart with his, and that's how you're going to give. And then it says, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Second Corinthians 9. So the big principle is, give in accordance with how God lays it on your heart, give cheerfully, not because somebody's arm twisting. Right? That's pretty much the rule. Now, in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, set aside some money on the first day of the week. But that wasn't really talking about the local group. That was a special missionary gift that was going to the church in Jerusalem. But setting aside some of the first day of the week is not a bad thing. It's a good principle, but it's not really mandated in Scripture. Well, what about tithing? Well, Again, I've heard some pastors that get selective about their tithing verses, right? We all know the Malachi one, right? Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. It's like we want it. We want the tithe, and we know that's 10%. But remember I said that this Luke was hearkening back to Deuteronomy 15? I've never heard a pastor preach about tithing for Deuteronomy 14 and 15. Those of you who read your Bible all the way through come across these verses. Listen to this teaching about tithing. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain and of your wine and of your oil and the firstborn of your herd and flock that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So you take your tithe, you go to church, and you eat it to the glory of God. You eat your own tithe. <laughs> Has anyone ever heard a pastor say, bring all your money and throw a party 
and enjoy it. No, no one ever has said that. Now, it gets better, depending on your perspective. Verse 24, it says, but if the way's too long for you, right? If it's too far for you to herd all your firstborn cattle, if it's too far so that you can't carry the tithe when the Lord blesses you because the place is too far, verse 25, then turn it into money, bind up the money in your hand, and go to the place your God chooses, and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat it before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. Has anybody ever heard Pastor talk about that verse in tithing? Now I'm not saying you swing by the ABC store on the way to Wednesday night fellowship. But you would be defensible. I'm not suggesting that. I would spend it on crawfish. I think that's a much better investment of what my appetite would crave. But then, verse 27, it says, And do not neglect the Levite, for he doesn't have a portion or an inheritance. Remember, this is Deuteronomy. This is God saying how it was supposed to be. So we need, when we see this thing about having everything in common, we just need to realize this is a description. This is not a prescription. And we need to think about all that. One really, really important thing I want to close on. Sometimes doctrine will sneak up on you in Scripture, and you've got to be looking for it. We believe in the Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This passage that we just looked at, maybe some of you caught it, but this is one of the absolute best passages. In fact, I would underline it and write Trinity out to the side of it. How do we know that the Holy Spirit is God? Look at what Peter says when he's talking to Ananias in 5 verse 3. But Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So, we know the Holy Spirit is a person who can be lied to. And then in verse 4 it says, you have not lied to men, but to God. You lied to the Holy Spirit. You lied to God. Holy Spirit is God. So if anyone ever wants to, is the word Trinity in the Bible? It is not. It is, a, it is our best shot as measly humans to try to explain the wonderful fellowship of our God. But here we have the Holy Spirit is part of that fellowship. When God says, it was good to us to make man in our image, the us was a fellowship, a perfect fellowship of God the Father, the Holy Spirit, God the Son. So be on the lookout for doctrine when it sneaks up on you. All right. At the feet of the apostles, what happens? It depends, right? It depends on your heart. That's all I got. Any questions? Comments? Not early, not late. I guess on time. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it has such unity across the centuries and that it applies to us even today. 
Father, we do want to be faithful with the things that you've given us, and we want to be generous. And we thank you for the ways that you blessed us so much. May we give in proportion to what you've given us, which is so much more. We thank you for Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen.